Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey everyone, this is Jordan with the Startup to Scale podcast, and today I have the privilege of working with Karen Green from Food Mentor. Karen, thanks so much for joining today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. So Karen, I love that you work with early stage food, beverage, brands, um, most of which are in the UK. You're based in France, but you work with a lot of the brands in the UK. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about how you help them. So I work with people from concept and recipe right up to brands that are looking to go into major UK retailers um, and really help them on the commercial side. So get them to think about their cost pricing, think about how they're going to craft their selling story. So they, they get really clear on the brand and the USPs, but actually how does that relate into retailers? So taking a bit of a spin on the work they've probably already done to, to get their brand designs, to get their recipes and say, right, actually, how do we convert that into a compelling selling story for a specific retailer? I absolutely love that. And one thing that I know this early on, we talked about a little bit was how early stage brands have a different perception of their product costs and how they sell it in the market. So what are some of those biggest mistakes that founders make when they're just getting started? I think one of the biggest challenges is a lot of people get started and they sell direct to customer. So they'll put their product on and say they've gone into maybe one of the premium stores. We have a couple in the UK. We have Whole Foods, which I know you guys have as well. Um, Another one is Planet Organic and a bread that might sell in a main retail outlet for, say, two pounds might be there for seven. So they go, oh, I can sell it for seven. And they make a decent margin. Maybe their costs are three, four pounds or dollars and they go that's good I'm making you know three dollars three pounds profit what they don't realize is that when they go to the retailer they're gonna have to give the retailer probably 40 percent margin so that's gonna cut them back to start with and the other mistake that they make is is looking to give everything so they want to have it organic they want it to be free range they want a specific source of a type of lemon they get really into the the specific elements which are going to add cost and then when they cost the product yeah they will work out the raw materials they'll add in the packaging and then they say well i'm not going to pay myself at the moment so there's no labor charge so their cost price is artificially low. And when they go to scale, which is the critical thing which you're about, what I'm about is to get these brands to a bigger stage, they suddenly find that the retail price is lower, the cost price is higher, and there's nothing left. The the piece of the pie for them to reinvest in brand and marketing just isn't there. And I know a lot of founders are very disappointed with that (laughs) because they feel like (laughs) they're always 
<laughs> it's it's easy to to add, right? Everyone says like, oh, let's make it organic, let's make it bio, let's add all these other things to it. But it's really hard to subtract at the beginning because it feels like you're losing something. Even before you launch, just saying like, we're going to go from the organic ingredients to conventional ingredients. Like it feels like you're losing something and that you're not being true to who you are. Um, but I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that ideally you're running a business, right? If you're running a hobby and you just had a full-time job and went to the farmer's market on weekend because you like making it, you can maybe get away with having a higher price point. But if you actually want to turn it into a business, you need to think about designing the product from business fully from concept to everything else beyond that, right? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And we were talking about this earlier about look at, the big brands. So look at Coca-Cola, look at Pepsi. And I'm sure your clients, my clients don't want to look at Pepsi and Coca-Cola. They don't want to be that big corporate, but you have to look at the way those guys work. Their cost of goods are tiny. You know, it's water flavoring and sugar or glucose or sucrose, but, and a little bit of packaging, but that means that they probably have 80% of the selling price to give to the retailer and then reinvest in marketing, which creates the virtuous circle of volume. So what I like to do with my clients at the beginning is say, what's your goal? You know, is it a hobby business like you're describing to do it at the weekends? Is it something that you want to make a reasonable living? Or do you want to make a brand that's going to do five, six million? And then you sell it to one of the big guys. And that's often the dream, but you're not going to be able to get that traction unless you've got a product that's going to make money. Have you experienced any of your clients or companies that you see who try to grow too fast without building a strong foundation and then have issues along the way? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, A really good example um, is is probably Zinder Foods. So they started literally with a listing in Tesco. So, um, you know, this is, Tesco's is, is, have got 27% of the market share in the UK, just to put it in context. It's, it, they are huge. And these guys, they make chilled wraps, chilled filled wraps that go in the food to go section, beautiful, fabulous products. And bang, they're suddenly in 70 Tesco stores and Tesco's are like, where's your marketing? Where's your tribe? Where's your this? Where's your that? And what it also did was for a couple of years meant the the guys where you would normally start like Whole Foods and Planet Organic went, whoa, not for us. You're with the big boys. So it turned it upside down. Um, And interestingly, now we've come out of pandemic and food to go is coming back. They're starting to have the conversations and and the co-op are interested and these are interested and that are interested and and it is starting to roll forward. But I found that one a very interesting, the paradox of of perceived success. Yeah, and the other thing, like you mentioned, it's one thing to get accepted onto the shelf of a store, but once you've been doing this for a while, like that's not so hard. The really hard thing is getting your product selling off the shelf. (laughs) So what strategies do you encourage um, companies to do to really get their product moving off the shelf? 
I think it's it's a two pronged attack. It's kind of push and pull. So the first one is obviously your external marketing. So getting the coverage, which is why this this building bottom up and getting a tribe of people ready so that when you're launched onto those shelves, you've got that tribe and you can send them in and doing the external marketing, you know, the social media, the the PR is great and then within the stores doing trade activities and it depends entirely on the retailer i mean for some of the smaller guys sampling works really well for the bigger guys in the uk and i don't know what it's like in the us actually it's too expensive they charge a lot of money um for for doing in-store sampling you can't do it yourself you can't just turn up with your little stall and go would you like to try some products unfortunately the health and safety boys have got there before you and it's just not that easy but certainly looking at things like a launch promotion so you get people encouraging trial is so critical for for any food products and then encouraging repeat purchase i was looking at some statistics that that show this kind of half-life, half-life, half-life. And I think if you can get people to the seventh time, you've got them. So the first time someone tries it, half of them will stop and then half-life, half-life, and then you get to the point. So I think you've got to keep reinforcing um, people strongly at the beginning um, and then keep it going. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard keeping it keeping the momentum going. Um, have you seen any any clients that you worked with or just in the market that have done a successful job of that and have any insight on how do you retain those customers? The, the, the famous one here in the UK that is the darling of all marketeers is Little Moons. So Little Moons make um, mochis, which are the, the rice cakes filled with ice cream um and actually I had one for the first time yesterday and they're really nice um and they're in Tesco and they're also in Waitrose which is a smaller about 200 stores big campaign on TikTok and it went viral and viral and viral and they actually went out of stock are in Tesco's and Waitrose because it was like see if you can find the products it was just an amazing campaign and they're flying and it's it's been fantastic and they haven't needed to do the price promotions because people just want the product um and yeah i would i would certainly google little moons if any of your your listeners want to learn about (laughs) marketing in the uk and using tiktok because they are just a prime example i love that um have you heard of the brand midday squares from canada no, I haven't. Oh, so check out Midday Squares. They oh. are a, um, a refrigerated chocolate company. And okay. they do something incredibly well, which is have a very transparent, authentic form of marketing where they actually film the internal operations and conversations between their founders and team members and share everything. They share their revenue numbers. They share their problems. They just posted a video recently saying how um, Hershey's and RX bar actually sent them cease and desist letters because their packaging was infringing on the trademarks of their own, right? And instead of kind of like sweep that under the rug, they film a video about it. 
Um, but they're actually having the founders like, like, look, look at what we just got in the, like in our email. And they're like walking to each other and they have like a full-time videographer, like a reality TV show style. And, but it's very like vulnerable. You know, they, they're, they're swearing on there. They're emotional, they're crying. And it's, it's just the reality of what it's like building a business. And for their audience, right? It's very rebellious. It's very kind of anti-establishment, but for their customer base, you feel like you're part of their journey. And if you are their customer, like you're watching this like TV, right? And you're just like buying their product because you want them to succeed because, you know, they're the little guy going up. They, they, were able to create this, you know, like the David and Goliath story, they create this Goliath that they were going after. And um, a lot of their customers are like rooting for them and trying them because of that. And so I know they even have like a huge fan base in the US and they're like not even sold in the US yet. (laughs) They're like in Canada and they're doing some online stuff here, but they've just been able to build this incredible following based on like who they are and their personalities and make that happen. And I would, I haven't seen their numbers on repeat, but I think they're very strong because people just, the people who believe in them really believe in them. It's a compelling social story, isn't it? I mean, it's, we, we tend to talk about our brands and, and yes, we talk about the brand story, but, you know, the most engagement I've had with posts is when I post personal things, you know, like some things like I, it's my mother passed away from COVID last year. I think I had the mm. most engagement of every post. Um, and that's not to say you, you use that and do that, but actually people want to have and I think even more post lockdowns and pandemic want that social connection and like you say it's it's like a soap opera that's why we watch yeah. soap operas <laughs> we want to see what's going to happen next week and it's the same with that I mean I'm going to be one I'm going to want to watch that now you've got, yeah. <laughs> they've got one new follower. I'm like whoa that sounds so interesting um, it, it, it is and I think you're right like that personal connection is so key because we've been um living in the world for for decades where you know, you have no idea who's running Coca-Cola or Pepsi or who's behind the scenes there. And like, well, yes, those products will still be successful. The ones that are challenging them are ones that people can relate to, right? Like the product has to be good first and foremost, but if, as long as the product is good, then people can really latch on to a story and the why behind the people behind it. And that's what gets incredible engagement. Like you were saying, everything that's personal, good and bad, um, people want to like know, know you and your story. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about so long as the product is good. I think the product has to be acceptable because I've done a lot of research on private label over the years. I've, I've done a lot of private label development. And for example, carrying on with the Coke, we developed an own label cola. We did a lot of blind tasting. We won hands down on flavor every time. But when you actually presented the two bottles, one with Walmart and one with um, Coca-Cola, they picked Coca-Cola. And yes. <laughs> yeah. Power of that branding is so compelling, which takes me back to that original point of yes, put put in your USPs, but it doesn't have to be quite as just so as you think. And I know that's a controversial thing, and you'll probably have lots of people writing and going, "Oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about." Taste is is important, but so long as it's acceptable, right? It's good enough. I agree with that. Yep, I definitely agree. And people, people are more willing to 
be flexible on taste than they are on a lot of times like the story and the branding and other things like that, because that part begins to reflect their identity and who they are and what they believe in. Right. And do you want to be associated? And they, you know, a lot of taste tests with wine and other things will show mm-hmm. if you tell someone in advance, like we have a Walmart versus a Coca-Cola product, even if they did the blind taste test, they won't believe you. If you said that that was the Walmart one, they'll, they'll refuse to mentally accept <laughs> yeah, no, right, that actually. they liked a Walmart product. <laughs> like it just doesn't work in their minds. Which, which is, which is just like you say, re-emphasizes that branding is is nine parts. I think product is product is important, and that's what we're probably all most passionate about as foodies. But actually, it's the branding that's exactly. going to make you. I love that, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.